Okay, it looks live. Complaints. And that came on, so it's probably live. Go ahead and... Fresh. Head of man. First. Top. Beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faith, faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Good stuff. Okay, I forgot something. Let me get that. All right. We got that. All right. Let's see. We have... Uh, we have six. That means it's the third today. Fourth? What day is it today? Third. third. Okay, I was right. I got it. One no and five yeses. So I'm going with the yes. All right. Three December. He was born in obscurity for a day that would live in infamy. December 3rd, 1902 marked the birth in Nagao, Japan of Mitsuo Fuchida. His story, told in his own words, reveals the mark he left on history and the mark God left on him. This is his words. I must admit I was more excited than usual as I awoke that morning on at 3 a.m. Hawaii time. As general commander of the Air Squadron, I made last-minute checks on the intelligence information reports in the operations room before going to warm up my single-engine three-seater plane. The sunrise in the east was magnificent above the white clouds as I led 360 planes towards Hawaii. I knew my objective to surprise and cripple the American naval force in the Pacific. Like a hurricane, out of nowhere, my torpedo planes, dive bombers, and fighters struck suddenly and with indescribable fury. It was the most thrilling exploit of my career. With the end of the war, my military career was over. I became more and more unhappy, especially when the crime, the war crime trials opened in Tokyo. Though I was never accused, General Douglas MacArthur summoned me to testify on several occasions. As I got off the train one day in Tokyo's Shibuya Station, I saw American and American distributing literature. He handed me a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. What I read eventually changed my life. On that Sunday, while I was in the air over Pearl Harbor, an American soldier named Jacob DeShazer had been on KP duty in an army camp in California when the radio announced the sneak demolishing of Pearl Harbor. He shouted, Jap, just wait and see what we'll do to you. One month later, he volunteered for a secret mission with the Jimmy Doolittle Squadron, a surprise raid on Tokyo. After the bombing raid, they flew on towards China but ran out of fuel and were forced to parachute into Japanese-held territory. During the next 40 long months in confinement, DeShazer was cruelly treated, but after 25 months, the U.S. prisoners were given a Bible to read. There, in a Japanese POD, POW camp, he read and read, and eventually came to understand that the book was more than a historical classic. After DeShazer was released, he returned to Japan as a missionary. And in, oh, good news, and in God's providence, Fuchido... He gave that tract that he had written. Fuchido continues. The peaceful motivation I had read about was exactly what I was seeking, since the American had found it in the Bible. I just, oh, I better not. Uh, you guys can read that yourself. I've heard a story before, so 
I'm not going to read that thing anymore. It just, I can't do it. I just, you know, the Lord, he can change even the hardest heart. It's so good to us. Yeah, just go read the story online. It's a one-year book of Christian history. Sorry about that. I just, I, I, when I hear a story and I know it's coming, I always, uh, yeah. Oh, we got a prayer request, I think. Oh, yeah, Doug. Of course, I should remember that. Doug, uh, our artist in Ireland, is traveling today. He's going from Ireland to uh, Boston, and then he's got to get up to New York to finish some uh, uh, family business after his mother's death. And so uh, we pray for him. He's only going to be in the U.S. for a day and a half, I think, and then he's going to go back. But we want to pray for, you know, safe traveling, safety in New York, of course. I mean, that's like, yeah, gosh, terrible, terrible. Uh, so we'll keep Doug in prayer, and uh, we'll hope that he gets back without any troubles to his beloved Doe. And uh, he's such a good guy. It's it, we're all sad that he's not coming down to Florida, but, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. And uh, so anyway, we have um, uh, Becky. She emailed me, and she's much better. She's had a lot of troubles, and she is feeling better. Got some uh, antibiotics and kind of helped her this week, and so that's good news. And... Uh, I know I'm forgetting some, which I failed to write down. It's been a really busy week. But uh, all right, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and uh, how good you are to us, that you would uh, you would send your son to die for us. And uh, as the sermon says on Sunday, it's not that you don't care about us. You wouldn't have spent all of redemptive history lining things up for the perfect moment for him to come if you didn't care about the people you created. And so help us to be responsible like that missionary and to hand out tracts, to tell people the word, to be willing to speak, to be willing to share our, of ourselves so that others can have an understanding of what Christ has done, how wonderful it is to know what he's done for us. And we, we don't want to see anybody miss that chance. So we pray this, that you'll be glorified, and we certainly pray it in his beautiful name. Amen. Okay. Uh, where are we? We're in Galatians 4.27 today, but you can back up to wherever you want, and we'll just go from there. Let's go to Gideon's paragraph 24. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represented two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are the slaves. This is Hagar, and now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds with the present city of Jerusalem. But she is in slavery with her mm -hmm. But in Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, she, our mother. 27. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pain, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Mm, okay, once again, he goes to Scripture. And uh, just as a reminder, you know, we got uh, the book of Galatians, and it deals with lots of, lots of smaller subjects, but the main subject is trust in Christ, the grace of Christ, and to stay away from the law. The law is done. And, you know, I, I got a kind of a sad letter today. I uh, read it, somebody sent it in to me, and uh, he's going to hopefully be coming in January, but he's got family members that uh, you know, they say that what Paul says conflicts with what Christ says, and so they just are disregarding him. And how people can come to a conclusion like that when God has given us the word 
and he's written it so methodically and so carefully. And we see grace every week in these Deuteronomy sermons, which is the law. And yet, you know, Christ came and it, it, what did they think the gospels are for? Anybody here wonder what the gospels are for? It's to show us that Christ fulfilled the law. That's the, the point of them. It's it, that we have a law that we are entrapped in. It's not just the law of Moses, it's the law. It's Adam was given a law. He fell. We're all in that. Even if we're not under the law of Moses, we're trapped. And God is trying to show us that what we need is to trust in him, regardless of what else is going on at any point in time or in our lives or anything else. The main story of the book of Galatians is perfectly in accord with the work of Jesus Christ. It's not in contradiction to it. It's not in any conflict with it. It is the fulfillment of it being poured out by Paul into letters, begging people to understand it. And how people cannot come to the conclusion that what the Gospels is for is to show us the fulfillment of the law and its ending in Jesus Christ is beyond me. I so don't know how people can... doesn't know about dispensation? Uh, well, you know, the person is trying to help them out. He actually, well, I better not say too much because it's private and I haven't read the letter to see if I can share it or not. Okay. But I don't know what the uh, whether they believe in dispensations or not. But, you know, if people would just simply learn what dispensations are and they would be able to divide these things properly. I don't know, was it yesterday, the uh, Revelation study? You know, it's a very long study. And the very last thing, the life application, which is usually long in the Revelation studies, was one sentence. Don't mix dispensations. If you can avoid doing that, you're going to have proper theology. Then probably the second and um, second most important thing, other than mixing dispensations, is to not use the book of Acts prescriptively. I would say those are your two biggest faults that people have in their theology, which causes them to have a bad theology, is mixing dispensations, which should not be mixed, or misapplying something from another dispensation, and then using the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner. Like I say, there's a couple verses in the book of Acts which are prescriptive. Right at the beginning, Jesus tells us a couple things, and they're ignored by every prophecy person on the planet. You know, he says, you are not to know the times and the seasons which I'm going to do these things, you know, which the Father has kept under his own authority. Basically, he says, just go out and do your job. I've fulfilled the law. Now you go out and tell people this wonderful message. And, you know, the idea of those words is that we're not to be speculating on when the rapture is. We're not to be speculating on who the Antichrist is. It's very clear that we're never going to know who he is. So why worry about the guy? But, uh, you know, those are the only couple of prescriptive verses in the book of Acts. And we can't even apply those properly. We need to be careful not to do the things we're not to do and to pay attention to the things we need to heed. Anyway, here we go with... Um, 427. Uh, the whole point of that long talk there was to remind you that we are not under the law, and that is the point of the book of Galatians. We are not under the law, okay? The law is done. It is annulled. It is fulfilled. It is set aside, and it is obsolete. So um, Paul showing the superlative nature of the new covenant over the old uses the words of the Greek translation of Isaiah 54 verse 1. To continue his analogy between Hagar, the slave of Abraham, and Sarah, his wife. In doing so, he says, for it is written. Right there, right out of the uh, scriptures is where he is giving all of this information. He does it again and again. Scripture says, it is written. 
Okay, when he does that, he's taking the Old Testament and he's showing you how it is fulfilled in the New. And sometimes it seems like almost a dubious connection until you realize what Paul is doing, that God had all along written these things in the past for our understanding of what Christ would do. That's, you know, we got these things going on in the Old Testament. I told Sergio this past Monday, I typed the sermon and it went really quickly. I was so thankful. I was talking to the Lord. Thank you. But it was one of the most Christological passages I found in Deuteronomy yet. It was, um, let me see if I can find it really quickly. I think it was chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12. But let me look at it. And because I'm, you know, I'm always practicing so many things at one time. I forget what I've been doing. You know, it would help if I went from Numbers to Deuteronomy instead of Numbers to Genesis numbers. Uh, It's just full of Christological information. I was thoroughly surprised at the end of the day how it was. Um, uh, Yeah, it's chapter 12 verses 1 through, I think I went through 7 maybe, um, right in that area. And I just couldn't believe it. I was just so excited by the time I was done because of it is written. And there it is in the Old Testament. It's under something we think is the law. And yet there's all of this Jesus in there. It it was astonishing. So I'm so thankful for that. And you know, if the rapture happens, all the better. But if it doesn't, that'll be a fun day for me to preach on. Um, okay, so uh, he goes back to Scripture, for it is written. He's claiming that the verse, Isaiah 54, 1, has a fulfillment in the subject that he is writing about. At the time, Isaiah was writing about the restoration of Jerusalem. He prophesied that she would go forth from desolation to abundance and from a state of barrenness to a state of health and the bearing of children. Her borders would expand and the city would increase. Paul shows that this was only a picture of the true Jerusalem. The words of Isaiah are more perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So we have a literal fulfillment. Isaiah wasn't just writing stuff that wasn't going to happen. It's literally going to happen. All of these things that are prophesied will come about, but there's a more perfect fulfillment of them in the new Jerusalem. If you wonder what that means, God repeats things so that he doesn't waste a lot of time. He doesn't need to do a lot of new things. Then Ecclesiastes tells us that. It says in Ecclesiastes 1.9 and Ecclesiastes 3.15, basically the same thing. That which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. And he does that for several reasons. One, as I said, is there's no point in wasting a lot of time. If you're going to repeat yourself, people will understand what's going on. But two, the very fact that things are repeated will let us know that what has happened you get it more quickly. I see this happened at the Mount Sinai, and now it happened in Jesus' fulfillment when the devil tempted him. We'll see that on this Sunday. We see these things repeating so we know that the Lord's hand is in it, okay? And so there was a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 54 in Israel, and it's probably, uh, I can't remember, they may be speaking of the millennial reign of Christ as well, okay? But it has a more perfect fulfillment in Christ's work for the church meaning Jews and Gentiles who are going to go to heaven, okay? So, here we go. Um, uh, The world world at large was barren. There were no spiritual descendants of Abraham outside of those who came into the covenant line of Israel, such as Rahab and Ruth. Only those who were under the law and who were also circumcised in the heart were counted as true descendants of Abraham. I don't know if you remember that from uh, one or two weeks ago in the sermon in Deuteronomy, where he said again and again, circumcise your hearts, and he's talking about you're not righteous, you're not righteous. He said it like 27 times in just a few verses. He's letting them know you have no righteousness in and of yourselves. If you think that, you have missed the point of what we are doing. I am the Holy One of Israel, and you are to be like me, but you will you are not righteous in and of yourselves. 
you have to have your heart circumcised. Doing all these things of the law without a heart for the Lord doesn't mean anything, and actually it builds up an obstacle against the Lord. Because what, what happens when you are performing works of the law in order to be just before God? What, is, what happens? Sinner Pride. That's exactly right. Pride or failure. Huh? Is what? Or, or no, you fail. That's right. But David proves that you can fail. Of. Yeah, that's right. He proves, though, that you can fail and still be right with the Lord. Yeah. Because he failed again and again in some very big ways, cost people their lives. And, you know, 70,000 in Israel were killed because of his pride. But against his heart. Against you and you only have I sin. That's right. Against you and you only have I sinned. So uh, these things, these things that people are trying to do, you know, being justified before the Lord when he's already done everything for them, is just a huge slap in his face. That's all it is. It's just, it's a shaming of the cross of Jesus Christ to prove that they can do better. And that is what they need to understand. And unfortunately, this is blossoming in churches all over the world. But you got Rahav and Ruth, they're under the law, but they must also be circumcised in the heart to be counted as true descendants of Abraham. However, in the coming of Christ, the gates were open for any and all who would call out to God through him to become children of God by faith. That means anybody anywhere in the world can. doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter how tall you are, how handsome or pretty you are. And, you know, I would uh, take Paul's words that not many of you were, you know, wealthy, not many of you were wise, etc. I would take that and throw it in with beautiful people as well. Because when you're beautiful, you're not thinking of the things of the Lord. I mean, you look at all the Hollywood movie stars and it's just not on their mind. Okay, you can be handsome, you can be big and strong like me, and, you know, okay, maybe that's not true. But um, those things are actually impediments. And so, you know, sometimes what we need to do is to be humbled in order to come to the Lord. And old age does that, maybe a bad accident, your face gets scarred up, and you suddenly realize that all the people that thought I was great 10 minutes ago, you know, taking me off of their uh, uh, whatever, what's up at, or whatever, and, you know, they're not looking at my thing, and what is life about? And then you start seeking the Lord. But all of these things can be an impediment to your walk with him. So anyway, uh, in the coming the Christ, the gates were open for any and all who would call out to God, to him to become children of faith, of God by faith. And so Paul says, rejoice, O barren. It is the barren Gentile world that it's speaking of. Without a husband to whom he is addressing his word, he tells them to rejoice. And, you know, that takes you right back to uh, the Song of Moses, where the Song of Moses says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then the very middle of the Bible. What is the very middle of the Bible? I was going to make this a weekend question, so I probably... Uh, no, it's not Psalm 118. It's 117. My mother got it right. It's the very middle of the Bible. The reason why is because the Bible has how many chapters? 1189 chapters, so you cannot have it on an even number. It has to be on an odd number. It's Psalm 117. It is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And what does it say? Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The Gentiles, okay? If people think that the Bible is all about the Jews and there's no hope for the Gentiles, they've completely missed what God is doing. He is using the Jews among the nations to help the Gentiles, all of the people of the world, understand what God is doing. So here you got the Song of Moses says it. you got the middle of the Bible says it. And then you've got Paul's words right here that are saying, we are included in this as well. In no way is that 
to diminish in any way the status of the Jews, of what they have done, or what they will continue to do throughout redemptive history. But it's saying that the focus is not just on the Jews. It is on the Gentiles as much as anything else. So here we go back to uh, uh, where we were. It says, um, so what is the middle of the Bible? 117. 117. Never forget that. Okay. 1189 chapters in the Bible. 117 is the middle, smallest part of the Bible. So it actually kind of forms a chiastic structure. If you start with the smallest and work out like that, it's kind of pretty. A guy in uh, uh, Scotland, he's at the, uh, uh, what's the institute? The uh, Anyway, Vernon Jones is his name. And he did a great website called The Other Bible Code. Uh, anyway, uh, it has nothing to do with the goofy Bible codes that people make stuff up out of. He uses numbers to to see patterns in Scripture, and it's pretty wonderful. Um, it, it's a little over my head, but Vernon Jones is his name, the other Bible code, and I think he even did a second website as well. Um, I can't remember, but it, it's just very cool to look at the things that he has done in there, and I'll remember the name of the, the uh, university he preached at, uh, the University of Glamorgan at Scotland. That's where he is, so... Look the guy up and uh, uh, just, I've talked to him several times through emails and he's a very nice guy and, uh, but he shows you these structures like that that are just very interesting. Anyway, back into where we were. Um, let's see here. Um, it is the barren Gentile world without a husband to whom he is addressing his words. He tells them to rejoice. He then further explains exactly who he was talking to. You who do not bear. There were no children of God in the Gentile world. None were born because none had been redeemed. But the time was coming when they would be. Isaiah's words point us forward to a time when the barren would, world would break forth and shout. That's Paul's words as he's citing from Isaiah. Break forth and shout. There was to be rejoicing in the once barren land. And it would come from those who, as he says, are not in labor. Okay, he's making a spiritual application of Sarah and Hagar. Remember that? Hagar had the child in the normal way. He's using her as the example. They did what people do all over the world and a baby was born, right? But Sarah had her, she had a barren womb and she had her child in a not normal way. This time next year, I will come and you will have a son, right? That's not normal to say, I know when you're going to have a child and it's not just nine months away. It's this many months in addition to it, a whole year away, and you're going to have this child. And so he's making a point out of them and then equating it to the Gentile people of the world. So uh, uh, where was I? Isaiah's words point us forward to a time when the barren world would break forth and shout. The Jews went through the labor of bondage to the law. Those of Israel who realized the law couldn't save them came to God through faith each year on the Day of Atonement seeking his mercy. However, the Gentiles never had such labor. Instead, they would go from a state of barrenness to an immediate state of adoption. Here, Israel went through all of these labor pains for years and years and years and years, and the Jews that did call on Jesus finally became true sons through adoption because of the work of Christ that had to be fulfilled first. But the Gentiles never had that. They didn't have any of those labors of going through the law. They were just doing their own thing, and all of a sudden, somebody walks up to him like that Japanese guy. He gets a track from somebody. He's a Gentile in the world, and he goes from being totally excommunicated from God because he is under the, the power and authority of the devil, Devil, and what happens? He reads a track. His heart is, is circumcised. He calls on Jesus, and he's saved. Just like that. No labor pains, no pro progression of the law, or anything else. He goes directly to what happened to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. 
how wonderful that is. So, um, uh, however, the Gentiles didn't have that. They went straight from a state of barrenness to an immediate state of adoption, all because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is because the true atonement, which is the day of atonement, only pictured things found in him. Now, the reason why I stress that is because I want people to understand, if they've never listened to this uh, uh, teaching before, is that the day of atonement does not have a future fulfillment. Okay, people teach that the feasts of the Lord, and there's eight of them, the Sabbath and then the uh, seven annual feasts, they teach that those feasts of the Lord are fulfilled, the spring feasts at Christ's first coming and the fall feasts at Christ's second coming. That is untrue. Okay, in order to do that, they change the term feasts of the Lord to the feasts of Israel, or they just simply call them Jewish feasts. Both of those are incorrect. If you've never heard this before, you need to go back and watch the Leviticus 16 sermons and the Leviticus 23 sermons. The 16 are on the Day of Atonement, and then the Leviticus 23 are all of the feasts of the Lord. They are fulfilled in their entirety. There's nothing left to be fulfilled because if there is something, that means that the law itself is not fulfilled. And if the law is not fulfilled, then Jesus is not the Messiah. Everything is fulfilled in him. We are not waiting for any future fulfillment of the feast of the Lord. We need to make absolutely sure that we get that right because to say otherwise, and I'm very direct about this, is heresy. It's not bad doctrine. It is heretical because it's saying that Christ did not fulfill the law. If Christ did not fulfill the law, we are still in our sins. And so you need to always be very careful about accepting people, their doctrine and their teaching on the feast of the Lord. If they do not teach that they are fulfilled. And if you want to know the fulfillment, as I said, just go watch the sermons. You won't have to debate this with anybody anymore. But they are fulfilled. And to teach otherwise means you are teaching heresy. All right. So as a matter of fact, um, one of my friends that's in here now, but I won't give his or her name, gave me a whole uh, thing of CDs on the Feasts of the Lord. And I was listening to him and he started out very well with them. He was, you know, I got him right down here if anybody ever wants to listen to him. Um, but uh, uh, he started out, you know, these are the feasts of the Lord and blah, 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 blah. And he finally got to the fall feasts and he had to equivocate on the meaning of the the name of the feasts. He went from the feasts of the Lord suddenly to the feasts of Israel. And that's where his mistake was. And it's very sad that he did that because it's very clear <laughs> that those feasts were fulfilled. Just go watch the sermons or I can send you the uh, written sermons if you'd rather read them. It's it's clear as crystal to see that. Okay, from the barren state of the Gentiles, here called the desolate, will come an enormous amount of offspring. The comparison is made in the final words. It says, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. All right, the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. There is an article in front of the word husband in the Greek. It says, the husband. This is speaking of those under the law who had been married to God at Sinai. Children of God were born through this arrangement, but the Gentiles would have many more through faith in Jesus Christ. The emphasis from the article would make it read, she who has the husband of which the other is destitute. I got to pull this up here. Here I had this and I'm wondering why it's so hard for me to work today. And there it is. Okay, much better. Um, yeah, I know. So, um, and that's because I have a very minimal, small uh, amount of uh, brain pan, and so I can only do one thing at a time, and I forget even the smallest little things otherwise. So, um, the comparison is made 
in a way as to show the superlative nature of what would occur through the work of Jesus Christ. It should be noted that although it is Sarah who actually had a husband, it is not speaking of her in this citation as she who has a husband. The picture of, is that of Sarah being long barren, but now restored to the favor of Abraham by the bearing of Isaac, the son of promise. The normal course of a woman with a husband was to have children. This did not occur in Sarah's case. Instead, Hagar is the one who had a child. It is she who is equated with the Old Covenant. Through God's marriage to Israel, children were born. But through the marriage of the church to Christ, many more were born. This is a sense of what Paul is relaying to the Galatians. As this is so, he is demonstrating the superabundant nature of the work of Christ in comparison to the law. Everybody seeing that? I mean, just read the book of Hebrews one time and you see the word greater than like 400 times. He's greater than, he's greater than, he's greater than. Paul is using that same type of argument right there. And I would argue, as I do from time to time, just uh, so that people know, I'm 100% certain that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. I'm 100% certain of it. Uh, there are internal clues to it. There are uh, Greek word study clues to it. If you want to ever see that, go to the writings of E.W. Bullinger. And he went through, uh, it's in the book um, Number and Scripture, by the way. So you have that, Doctor. Uh, it's towards the end. I think it's chapter 11, if I remember. But it's been years since I read that. Um, he uh, takes all of the Greek words that are used in, special words that are used in Paul's writings, and they come out to a, like an uneven number, right? But when you get to the book of Hebrews and you add those same words in, it comes out to derivatives of seven again and again and again. Marvelous. It really is marvelous. So it may not be number in scripture. It may be the witness of the stars. That might be it, the book. It's one of those two. And I can find that if somebody wants to read it. It's, you know, it's just great. The book of Hebrews, I am certain, is written by Paul. And it's kind of a confirmation of that along with other, as I said, internal clues and just obvious the theology is somebody that was fully immersed in the law, and it would take somebody like a Pharisee to do that, and that would be Paul. Why is the book of Hebrews not named then? What's an obvious reason why God would not want it named? What? Hebrews? Hebrews. No, I'm saying the, 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 the author, yeah. Because they hate Paul. Because they hate Paul. They would reject it outright, but if they come to it first, with no author on there, and they say, look, at this is written to the Hebrew people. It's obviously a Hebrew who wrote it, on and on. And who is it written to? The end-time Jews. It's placed after the Pauline epistles. And so it is a perfect way of it being demonstrated that it is Paul without people even knowing that it is Paul. Okay, but it's definitely somebody very highly trained in the law, and it would take somebody like Paul to do that. So there you go, enough on that. Um, let's see here, uh, life application. Why would anyone devolve from receiving the grace of Christ to adhering to works of the law. I know we're all shaking our heads and wondering about that because the Galatians did it, but there are people, as you saw right there, you know, I told you somebody wrote me a letter today. I get emails from, from people constantly on this. What can I tell somebody to get them out of the Hebrew roots? My sister has gotten into this. My brother's gotten into this. My father has gotten into this. And they're almost begging, how do I get them to see it? Then I say, you know what? You just got to you got to give them Galatians. You got to give them Paul. And if they won't listen to Paul, I'm not sure where to send people because they're trained into things that are untrue. And you know, it, it's like anything else. If you have a presupposition about something, it can be theology, it can be politics, it can be whatever. You will close your mind off when you are faced with a conflicting view. 
that's the natural thing to do is to say, well, that can't be right. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make my mind uh, think how it could be possible. If I can't, then I'm just going to reject it outright. And I'm just going to, you know, it's like the, uh, the blinders that Paul speaks about in Corinthians, as far as the Jewish people, there's a point where you just don't want to admit that you're wrong. Pride steps in and you say, I'm not going to. And that's why I, I've said this many times. I'll say it again is when I do a sermon on Monday morning, I try to put aside everything. I try not to presuppose anything. And we just go one word at a time. And like I say, a verse will take an hour. But when I'm done with the sermon, I'll go back and read it. And I'll say, I had no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm not worrying about an overall picture. I'm worrying about what each thing says. And I'll go back and I'll say, that's amazing. And here I'm the one that just typed it, but I, you know, I'm not looking at it as a global thing. I'm looking at it little minute pieces. And when you go back and look at it, once in a while though, I'll see something and it'll excite me so much that that guy over there will get an email right away. And we do that, don't we, from time to time, back and forth. And then I'll ask him a question and we'll we'll get off onto some tangents. But I know he's busy, so I try not to use him too much. No more than six or seven hours on a Monday. So I think it's nine. Yeah, it might be nine. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the the term for doing that, just so you know, it, shutting off your mind is called cognitive dissonance. Okay, so you know that. It's important to know that if you don't understand it, type in cognitive dissonance into you know your Google search bar and read up on it. And it, it's a known phenomenon. It's not something I'm making up. It's something that you will see, though, in all circles of life. It doesn't matter what part of life you're dealing with. If you're dealing with pizza, there will be somebody that will say, I'm sorry, that pizza is no good, and they'll have cognitive dissonance, and they'll just shut it off. I don't care what you're doing in life. There's always some aspect of that in our lives, and we need to shut that out and try to be open about uh, understanding issues. Uh, you know, if I say, um, if I say to somebody, uh, I believe in short-term creation, and they believe in long-term creation, they just shut everything out. And I say, listen, I know where you're at right now because I was there. I went to school with that guy over there for, you know, how many years we were in Sarasota, uh, Riverview High School here in Sarasota. And what did they teach? Did they teach creation? Absolutely not. And so I believed in evolution. I believed that, you know, the earth was very old and et cetera, et cetera. It was one of the hardest things of all, maybe the hardest for me to accept after becoming a Christian was going from evolution to creation. And I got to tell you what, the Bible does not give any other option. You, you may think that you're right, that, you know, evolution is true, and but you were wrong, and you're going to have to set those things aside. At least, I'm not saying in any other capacity than from a biblical aspect. From a biblical aspect, it gives no other option than a literal seven or six-day creation short term. Okay, now, uh, is the Bible wrong? That's up to you to decide. I do not believe the Bible is wrong, and because I believe that it is true, and because it only gives that one option, then I am a firm, short-term creationist now. So, but that takes time, and you got to be willing to say, I could be wrong in this issue. Anyway, okay, um, I'll read that again. Why would anyone devolve from receiving the grace of Christ to adhering to works of the law? It is a step a giant one in the wrong direction. Let us never be so perverse as to think that we can do more to merit God's favor than his own son, Jesus Christ, did. 428. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Okay. This one says, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So you got a difference between the you and the we here. Paul's words here show the full force of what has occurred in us 
because of the work of Jesus. Ishmael was born to Abraham without any promise. Abraham simply went into Hagar, she conceived, and he was born. The process of his birth followed the normal order of things. However, Isaac was born of a promise. The Lord said that Abraham would have a son, even when it seemed to be that it could never, ever possibly occur. Later, he again told Abraham the time of the year that it would occur. This was after the birth of Ishmael, showing that Ishmael was not the son of promise. And just as the Lord promised, Isaac was born. In the same way, those who were made sons through the law occurred in the way that the law indicated. This is how you become a son. A covenant was made, it was sealed in his blood, and it came into effect. If one followed the precepts of the law, the sonship was assured. However, the prophet spoke of a time when the Messiah would come. This is even in the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen that. It's explicitly stated in the book of Deuteronomy that a prophet would come that would be like me, Moses says. If there's a prophet like me, what does that mean? Moses did what? No. He, he was the mediator of the law. That's right. He was the one that mediated a covenant. If he's a prophet like me, then that means that there is a new covenant coming. That's already understood in the book of Deuteronomy, and Jeremiah confirms that in Jeremiah 31. I think that's in this week's sermon. It might be in next week's. Anyway, it's, it's as obvious as the nose on your face after it occurs. But before that, you're thinking, what's he talking about? A prophet like me, and you're going to listen to him, and you're just thinking of some guy that's going to prophesy. Oh, okay. But that can't be because he also talks about other prophets in chapter 13. That's chapter 18 where he says a prophet like me. Okay. Well, if he's talking about other prophets in chapter 13, this is a true prophet. This is how you tell a false prophet. Well, then obviously he's not speaking about a regular prophet. He's speaking on a completely different level. And like I said, you look at it now and it's obvious. You think it through, Rhoda got it right away. I mean, you just think it through for a minute and you say, a prophet like Moses, it must be, and then it's logical. But it's only after the fact that we see that. However, we'll take you really quickly here. I know I've read this in one of the Deuteronomy sermons, but uh, I think it's in John chapter 1. It might be Matthew chapter 1, but I think it's John chapter 1. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it is. So I'm going to take you to John chapter 1, and we'll see if we can find it really quickly. Um, let's see here. Um, oh, Pharisees. Well, oh, yeah, here it is right here. John chapter 1, verse 24. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, this guy just drove from the Carolinas to come to Bible class. And he came late, so you're going to have to leave. I'm sorry. If you can't make it here on time, you just... Okay, uh, here we are. One, John 1, Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Oh, I'll take you back to verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they know that a prophet is coming that's like Moses. Okay, and then they asked, well, who are you then? And what did he do? He went and cited scripture. I'm the one. Um, I baptized with water, but there is one who stands among you whom you do not know. It is he who's coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm... All of the words of it tell these people that this is a really important person that's coming, but they knew that a prophet like Moses was coming. Okay, the leaders, maybe the common people didn't, but the leaders knew that somebody would come that would establish a new covenant. They may not have acknowledged that. We've got to stand under the law of Moses, but they knew that this was the ultimate case there. So there you go with that. Um, 
uh, where was I here uh, at birth of Ishmael? That's right. And um, yeah, okay, I'll read that again. In the same way, those who were made sons through the law occurred in the way the law indicated. A covenant was made, it was sealed in blood, and it came into effect. If one followed the precepts of the law, then sonship was assured. However, the prophet spoke of a time when Messiah would come. Now, that's not just Moses. That's all the way through. We know that, okay? He would come. He would be a king on his throne. He would have an eternal priesthood. And those who came to him by faith would be considered children of God. All of those can be found from the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. All of those precepts could. Uh, as far as uh, him being having eternal priesthood, where is that recorded? Hebrews. It's in Hebrews, but where is he citing it from? Because oh. they didn't have the book of Hebrews. The 110th Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I... Uh, uh, well, that might not be the one that has Melchizedek mentioned in there. That proves that he's, the, uh, he's going to be God, but that might not be the one that has Melchizedek mentioned. And if somebody wants to do a... Uh, Real quick search on you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It may be the same psalm. I'm, I'm just uh, not remembering, and I don't want to miss the point that I was making there. But let's see here. Psalm 110. I'll go there, and maybe it is. Um, yeah, it is. Same psalm. Okay. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we know that the Messiah is going to be a priest. But we also know that he's going to be a ruling king. Well, guess what? The Old Covenant doesn't allow a king to perform the priestly services. Remember when King Uzziah went in and he wanted to burn incense before the Lord and the priest ushered him out after he had gotten leprosy and he spent the rest of his life as a leper excluded from the house of the Lord because of that. There was no, no mingling of the priesthood and the kingship in Israel. And yet he's going to be a king and he's going to be a priest, and then it explicitly says that in the book of Zechariah, where it says you are a key, he is a king on his throne, or I'm sorry, a priest on his throne, and there shall be peace between the two, book of Zechariah, okay? Wow. So you know that he's going to be a king and a priest, and you also know that he's going to be a prophet. prophet. So you've got the prophet, priest, and king, and they all knew this. They knew that this was coming. All right. Anyway, where was I again? I keep losing my spot. I should keep my finger on this. Oh, yeah, he'd be a king on his throne. He would have an eternal priesthood. And those who came to him by faith would be ch considered children of God. This was all promised in advance. With the coming of Christ, the result of believing in his work is the reception of the Spirit and adoption into God's family. That's the result. You immediately become a son of God through adoption. And it's by an act of faith. There's nothing else. Paul already has explained this to the Galatians because they're all saved believers, all of them. And yet, what did they do as soon as Paul leaves and somebody comes in and says, oh, we're starting a Hebrew Roots Movement Church and we want you to join us. Well, what is that? Well, that means you have to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. Oh, good. Let's do that. I mean, what are you thinking? You've already been saved by the blood of Christ and now you're going to go back and do something perverse. That's what he's trying to tell these people. All right. So. Paul says here that we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. This is rather marvelous to consider. God said that this would occur, and here we are, the result of that marvelous promise. We are then likened to Isaac because of the way in which our sonship came about. How did Isaac's sonship come about? It was, that's, it was miraculous. It was told in advance. There wouldn't be any 
you know, there, there would be nothing normal about the entire process. And it's the same thing with us. We didn't have to go through birth pangs. We didn't have to do any of those things. And all of a sudden, we're sons of a God of God through adoption. So uh, as a side note, some manuscripts say we, others say you. If we is correct, then Paul is making a general statement about anyone who has been born of the Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus. If you is correct, then he is making a statement of emphasis that the Galatians are, in fact, children of promise. Okay, this is an important point to remember here. If they are saved, they are saved. Okay, either way, they have not lost their salvation by devolving to the law of Moses. They remain saved believers in Christ. The problem is not for them other than rewards and losses. The problem is for those that come after them. Anybody that comes into that congregation later is never going to be saved, ever, because they are not being given the true gospel, which Paul refers to explicitly in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. You're believing a false gospel. Let anybody that does that be anathema. So it goes right back to those words right there. Galatians 1, 6 through 8, okay? The people that come into such a congregation, like, you know, they got them all over the world. People in Australia will email me and they'll say, we've got a Hebrew Roots congregation and my brother's attending there now. What do I do? Okay. And well, is he saved? Yeah, he's saved. How about his family? I'm not sure. Well, that family is never going to be saved. I would focus on the family and tell him what he is doing to them. That's what I would do. I mean, you can only give people so much advice, but this is the repercussions of following a false gospel. But Paul right here is very clear. These people are saved. They're really, really saved and they're not going to become unsaved. Okay. They're saved, they then would be in contradistinction to what the false Judaizers taught. Rather than children of promise, they were attempting to get them back under the law. Either way, the Galatians are included in the concept of being children of promise. Life application. If we have been born of God, can we somehow become more fully children of God by observing the law? No, of course not. It's ridiculous to consider. Hold fast to the grace of Jesus Christ and give up deeds of the law. Oh, this week we're going to have the, uh, we're going to be observing Sukkot. We're going to be, I hear there's churches that do this. They build little tabernacles and they live in them. And they're trying to somehow please God by doing these things, which are just types and pictures of what Christ did. All right. Every one of the branches, he goes and tells them, cut leafy branches and palms and this and that. Every one of those branches that was cut Picture Christ, if you remember that study. You go back to the root of what the, the uh, branch comes from, and there's a picture of Christ right there. That's all you need to do is just say, oh, so why would you go and make a stupid little booth that probably doesn't even use the same branches that they were told to do in Israel, thus violating the law, and at the same time, ignore the work of Christ? Okay. Two by four. Yeah, but wooden two-by-fours. That's right. Build them out of two-by-fours. Um, we, we did some work with four-by-fours four today. By four. Big four, it was a big one. It was a 12 footer, and that baby was heavy. That was, a, that was a whole tree we carried down to the bay today. Wow. Yeah, Sergio and Rhoda and I. And guess what we did? I, I got to 80 pounds of concrete and we mixed it up. Well, I didn't. Rhoda did. She says, I want to do that. I like mixing concrete. Man, she got in there and was <laughs> amazing. That yeah, was pretty special. Okay, so we're in verse 429. Oh, wait, one more thing. Give up deeds of the law. Okay, 429. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same today, same now. 
Okay, this is a little different, but it says the same thing. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Does everybody remember the story of Ishmael picking on Isaac, right? When he was weaned? Okay, that was giving us a picture of what was going to come in the Gentile church. The Jews are persecuting the Gentiles, saying, oh, you're not a true son, and I'm better than you, and yeah, yeah, you're not Jewish enough, and all these things, and people believe this nonsense. Why? Because one, they don't read their Bible, and two, because they go to people that are teaching perverse theology. To their okay. benefit back then, they didn't have Bibles. And that's right, they didn't have Bibles back then. I mean, all they had was Paul, but Paul was there, and he told them, and now he's trying to, the good thing, though, is they got this letter, and hopefully they read it and took it to heart, but we have this letter. All of these things that we're seeing in Scripture are because they really happen at any time in redemptive history, in the church part of redemptive history. We are going to, if you go to, uh, you know, Romans chapter 3 and you look, there's going to be something in Romans 3 that could be pertaining to any given church at any time, right? And the same thing if you turn forward to uh, uh, Ephesians 4, right? You're going to go there and you're going to say, man, that applies to me today. You're sitting in there and the pastor's talking about it in the sermon and you're like, is he speaking to me? I mean, it, it's just natural because this is why God gave us these words. They're specific for us to know theology, and instead we get off on all of these funny tangents. Anyway, uh, 429. In the previous verse, Paul noted that those of the church are the children of promise, thus equating us to Isaac. Now he continues with that analogy. He says that just as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. This is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 21. Let me take you back there. Genesis 21. I'm telling you, those Genesis sermons are so beautiful. There's so much theology and so much Christology in the Genesis uh, uh, passages. It's just unbelievable. But we're in Genesis 21, and then we get to verse 9. I'll go to verse 8. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely Isaac. Okay, we're not there yet. We're going to be there in just a couple more verses, I think. Yes, it's coming in verse 30. But I'm going to tell you what, think it through before we get there. This is, Sarah is a picture of the freedom in Christ. Hagar is a picture of the law. The children are us who are in either position. And what does she say? And we don't need to, you know, when you do a sermon on this particular passage, you don't need to make anything up. You don't need to say, oh, this means, because Paul has already told us what it means. It is given by God for a specific reason. Sarah, who is picturing the church, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, cast out this bondwoman, Hagar, who is the people under the law. Cast them out, okay? and her son, that's the children who are born under her, meaning the Jews of this day, and the Hebrew Roots Movement, and anybody else that wants to be under this law. Cast them out, okay? We'll see this in a minute, but I'm just showing you. It's so obvious when you see it, okay? And what does she say? For the son of this bondwoman, all of those people that want to be under the law of Moses, shall not be heir with my son. Who are the heirs? They're the sons of promise, they're not sons of law. They're sons of promise, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. He loved his son. Well, guess what? God loves the Jewish people. He loves them. 
How do we know this? Because he's preserved them now in their disobedience for 2,000 years. He loves them. It's very displeasing in his sight, and someday he is going to call them back to himself. I mean, they're going to, when I say that, I, I say it kind of metaphorically, they have to be the ones to call to him. But he is doing it now, and they will realize that he has been calling them all along. Okay, and once again, if anybody ever says, well, you know, I, I, I will say this to people and they'll, what are you talking about? Jesus is not coming back to this planet until the Jews, not you and me, till the Jews call out for Christ. He is not going to put a foot on this planet until they do that. And people will ask, what are you talking about? It's right there. He said it with his own mouth. Okay, if people get caught up in all of this crazy stuff about the rapture and about Jesus' return and about dispensations, all you need to do is say, Jesus said when he is coming back. He said it with his own mouth. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who persecute, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the, prophets. the prophets, thank you. How I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers his chick under his wings, but you would not let me. Surely I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until they do that, until they as a nation, not individual Jews, as a collective body, and we're seeing this every single Deuteronomy sermon, we've been seeing this progression. Until they do that, he is not coming back to this planet, okay? He's going to take us up at the rapture. We're going to meet him where? In the clouds. We're not going to meet him in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or in Megiddo or any other place. We're going to meet him in the clouds. Okay. I wish people could get this and just have it sink into their heads because I understand there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. I, I understand that. There's a lot to remember, but there are key things that we need to just put in our head and not forget. Uh, I got an email from a friend over in Australia this morning. She says, I'm confused about the timing of the rapture. Okay, I know that she watched my timing of the rapture video, but what has she done? She's watched 50 other videos and the girls in her her class are all arguing. Is it pre-trib? Is it mid-trib? Listen, we don't need to make these arguments. Paul tells us exactly when the rapture is going to be. And what happens is they go to the book of Revelation. You know, I, I, you'll see in a couple more days, you'll be reading about pre-wrath. Okay, anybody know what pre-wrath is? It's a view on the rapture that happens before the wrath, okay? Okay, how do they get that? Well, they take this and they, they go through the book of Revelation, which isn't speaking to us at all or about us at all. It's speaking about the Jews during the tribulation period. Then they start coming up with these theologies. We don't do that. Who introduced the rapture to us? What's, no, yeah, well, no, Paul did, right? He first did it in 1 Corinthians 15, and then he explained it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then he explained because they were hard-headed again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's all we need to know. Paul gave us the information. He gave us the timeline. We don't need to add in a bunch of other stuff into our theology. And as a matter of fact, if you're doing that, you're adding in the wrong stuff because it doesn't apply during this dispensation. Okay, so having said that, we're going to go on. Um, Genesis 21.9, the word used in Genesis 21 as scoffing means something rather light and not injurious, such as to jeer at or to mock. Paul's words here in the Greek conveys the idea of aggressive pursuit, such as a hunter pursuing a catch. So you can see that Paul is adamant about this. He's saying this is given for us to understand, but we, we don't want you to just understand. We want you to really know that this is something you were being attacked with, okay? This doesn't mean that Paul has over-exaggerated the account, 
Rather, when a small child demonstrates a mocking attitude towards an even smaller child, it shows a streak of harmful intent, okay? So for him to just mock Isaac made to you and me be like, well, it's nothing. Oh, it's okay. Isaac's feelings would have been really hurt. That's what happens to little children. And Paul is saying that this is the repercussions for following people like this that are mocking you. Who cares? Take the hurt and get away from them. Okay, Sarah noticed this and it upset her greatly. Just a little bit of jeering of Isaac upset her greatly. Isaac was the son of promise and Ishmael persecuted him. Paul then makes the full analogy by stating, even so it is now. The son of promise, I got to tell you what, when I get an email from somebody, they'll watch one of my sermons and they'll email me and they're these law people. I don't care if they're Hebrew roots or if they're these messianic rabbis that reintroduce the law. They're brutal. What this says right here is absolutely correct. They are brutal. They you talk about persecuting somebody. Oh, you're going to hell and you don't know anything and you're a false prophet and blah, blah, blah. It just goes on and on and on. And it is exactly what Paul says right here. They can be absolutely brutal. They're almost as bad as the King James only people. Anyway, um, the son of promise, meaning the church was being bullied around by the son born according to the flesh, meaning those under the law. They had their traditions, and they had their long history. Thinking these things were more important than the Spirit, which was granted to those of the church by mere faith in Christ. So this is what the Galatians are thinking. I've been given the Spirit. I'm saved for eternity. But these guys know Hebrew, so I'm going to follow them. Yeah, you'll laugh about it, but it's, it's it, exactly, it's, it's laughable. All right, Isaac was the son of promise. Uh, oh, where was I? Yes. Um, the term spirit here refers to the full term found in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit of promise. We'll take you there right now. This is what Paul is referring to. He says, you guys have received the spirit. Well, he explains, oh, I'm going the wrong way. He explains how that happened in Ephesians 1. You believe the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15 verses uh, uh, 3 and 4. And then he says in Ephesians 1, in him, Jesus, who you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, you heard the word of truth. That's it. You were presented with the gospel and you heard it. In whom you also having believed. So you heard the word and you believed. That's all that Paul puts into it. Heard the word, having believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's it. And that's what happened to the Galatians. They heard the word, they believed, and they were given the spirit. And now after having received the spirit, he asked them, are you trying to merit God's favor by going back under the law? What are you, crazy? That's, that's what he's saying, okay? So, the Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory, not our glory. If we can lose our salvation, then there's no glory in it for God at all. He's the one that's made the covenant. He sent his son to die and shed his blood thus introducing the covenant. If we agree to the terms, having believed what we heard, we are sealed. There's no glory for God in somebody that can lose their salvation. Zero. People need to think that one through. Oh, you, you, I, that, I, whatever. Okay, um, let's see here. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Paul's words are intended to show the Galatians exactly what was occurring in the Judaizers. Those Judaizers are doing what uh, Ishmael did to Isaac, and what are the repercussions? We're going to see in one more verse. All right. They were actually persecuting the church through their false teachings. And when they didn't accept the false teachings, then they really got down on them. Like I get these crazy emails. 
life application. Every verse of Galatians. You know, one time years ago, before I knew anything about theology, I'd read the Bible a million times, but I, you know, reading the Bible does not mean you have good theology. It just means you know the Bible. Okay. Before I had any theology at all, I knew what the book of Galatians says. It's so obvious. It's black and white. See this page? What color is the uh, the paper? White. It's white. And what color is the ink on there? Black. It's very simple. We don't need to make this complicated. It's black and it's white. Okay. And there's words on there that have meaning. And anybody can come to this book one time and read it. And on my website, the old one, wonderfulone.com, I still have it there, just some cliff notes. I went through it and I just gave little short notes on every, uh, uh, not like a commentary, it was just little notes, okay? Just to make it even simpler for people. And I had this one lady email me. This is years ago. And she, she said something about the law and we need to be observant to the law. And I said, well, you believe what you want. But I said, that's contrary to what Paul says in this book. And that is anathema and that is heresy. And she came back, I knew you were going to be this way. I've read part of your website, and I can tell you that you would be this way. I'm married to a Jew, and I know the truth. And I thought, oh. I mean, that's her, that, that's her rationale for being right, if she's married to a Jew. Okay? Yeah, I mean, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's scripture. Here's my husband. That's exactly right. Which one are you going to? Oh, boy. That husband's had a lot to eat. He's getting pretty heavy there. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I, what's that? I know you are. He's over there blushing, too. His ears are red. They're about to fall off. Burn off, maybe. No, not really. Okay. Um, yeah, he's a good Jew, though. He's one of, he's one of the redeemed of the Lord. Yeah, um, the best. No, that's right. No, well, no. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. Because there's nobody good. There are none that are good. But when you're in Christ, you're good because of Christ. That's the point. Okay, I'm getting barbecued here for something that these people have not properly thought through. <laughs> not me. Of course not. Okay, we got to get back to this. Um, okay, false teachings, life application. Every verse of Galatians continues to be a warning to the church to not fall into the trap of turning to the law. Every single verse that we have seen has been for this purpose mainly. There are other small things that he has in there, but this is the main intent of Galatians. In any form, do not turn back to the law for justification. If you are doing that, you are you are following heresy or you are teaching somebody else heresy. Or you're appeasing yeah, or you're appeasing your husband, who's a Jew. Um, for, oh, my goodness. Okay, we are to rely solely on the grace of Jesus Christ, being obedient to the prescriptions of the hand of Paul. Put away your legalism, turn to Christ, be pleasing to God through what he has done. Okay, 430, here it comes. What, what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman. Okay, I, that version there, just it just takes away all of the majesty of this one here. It really does. It, listen, I know it is, but listen, listen to this. You read along as I read this and tell me which one is not much more majestic. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Isn't that much better? I mean, it says the same thing, but this is so much more majestic. It's just... It's like a New King James version. Yeah, well, that's what it is. It's a New King James version. It's just, oh, it, what does that one say? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's push her out Charlie's the door. Name. and yeah. Okay, all right. It's a footnote. 
Here we go. Paul still continuing with his analogy between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac returns to scripture to show what the New Testament faith in Christ should do with adherence to the Old Covenant doctrine. As he asks, what does scripture say? He proposes that the Galatians make a sound decision based on the very words which pointed them to Christ in the first place. Okay? These words that I told you all this time ago, this is what pointed you to Christ. This is what we need to get back to, the basics. And it's words based on the analogy he has derived from it. Tell them to cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast her out. This is a quote from Genesis 21.10, which we read a minute ago. These words come from the mouth of Sarah when speaking to Abraham. But Paul ascribes them to the divine source of Scripture. Like all words recorded in the Bible, the Holy Spirit chose them from among countless words spoken by people throughout their lives. Do you ever think about that? I mean, Sarah and Abraham had thousands. Well, probably more than that because they lived really old back then. They had tens of thousands of conversations. And we get a couple, literally, if you think of it, out of their whole life, a couple of passages of their conversations. Very few. God is not wasting words. He is selecting words to be very minute and precise, and he doesn't add in anything unnecessary into his word, okay? These are the words actually uttered by them, but they hold a special bearing on the process of redemption. God said, I want that conversation recorded in this word, and here's why, okay? And so they are also those words which are used by God for us to understand his purposes for us. Paul is showing us right here that this is the purpose of Scripture. It's not just to read a story about a couple guys that went out into the, you know, the wilderness and shot arrows, okay? There's somebody over there that's waiting for the answer when he shoots the arrow and the little boy runs over there and he says, go, it's past you. There's a reason why that is in there. Yes, it has an immediate fulfillment in, in David and in, what's the guy's name? Uh, uh, what's that? Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you. I wanted to say Joshua and I knew that wasn't right. I'm I'm trying to think and do two things at once, but Jonathan and his arrow boy, and then you've got David waiting. Well, that has a picture of something coming to Christ. It's not just a curious story for us to read and say, oh, it's a story for us to say, what is this pointing to in Jesus Christ? And that's all the way through the Bible. It's all the way through. We'll see a little bit of that this week. And I think it's nine or 10 weeks when we do last Monday's sermon. You'll see all kinds of them. There's all kinds of stuff, even in the book of Deuteronomy, that will lead us to understanding Jesus. All right. That's what God is doing. All right. These are the words which are used by God for us to understand his purposes for us. Sarah had told Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. Paul is asking us to cast away doctrine, which applied to the law of Moses. It should be noted that he is not telling them to cast away the Old Testament. He's not telling them to do that. How could someone know what he was talking about unless they had the words of the Old Testament to refer to? Got that? Logical. So okay. he's talking about dispensations. He's talking about dispensations. That's exactly right. Rather, he has equated Hagar, Ishmael, with the doctrine of the law of Moses, doctrine which is now obsolete and annulled. Once again, Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9, Colossians 2.14. They all say basically the same thing. The law is done. It is dead. It is, it is over. All right. Continuing on, he explains the reason why using words still spoken by Sarah. He paraphrases the words for our understanding, but the intent remains. 
For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. That was an actual conversation. Paul did not change scripture. He is amending it to make a theological point. Does everybody understand that? He has the right to do that. One, because he's an apostle. Two, because he's being influenced by the Spirit. Holy men of God were carried along by the Spirit, etc. And so he's not doing anything. And we cannot do that. We cannot take scripture and twist it because we are not apostles. We are not writing scripture. We can analyze scripture and we can come to conclusions about that, but we can't amend scripture. Whatever is not amended by Paul or the other apostles must stand, okay? The son of the bondwoman includes all of those who hold to the works of the law of Moses for their justification before God. Every single person on this planet today who says they're a follower of Christ and yet are following the law of Moses instead are what they're talking about right here. Cast out the bondwoman. All right, cast her out. The son of the free woman includes those who have trusted Jesus Christ alone for their right standing with him. The contrast could not be made any clearer. The Galatians had been duped into heresy by the Judaizers. The law could never save, it never did save, and it was to be cast away. Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, a lot of nice people. You know, they get out there and they do their stuff and they're honest people. They're decent. They work hard. They're following a false doctrine. They're following a false doctrine. And when you see them going down in the projects and they're knocking on doors, you always know them different from the uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses because the Jehovah's Witnesses dress in a certain way and they always go two by two, you know. But you'll see the Seventh-day Adventists out there very infrequently, but they will go. And that's because probably, you know, somebody new attended their church and they're going out to meet them and then to maybe talk to their neighbors or something. But they're teaching, I'm sorry, they're teaching a false gospel. That's all there is to it. They're relying on the law in order for their justification. Hence, they're called the Seventh-day Adventists, okay? The law could never save, it never did save, and it was to be cast away. How is it that some people can't simply pick up this book from Paul's hand and accept it at face value. And it does not contradict at all with what Jesus says. Jesus fulfilled the things that he was saying, and Paul is explaining that to us. There is no contradiction. There is no lack of clarity at all in this, okay? Now, I know one thing I want you to know, this comes to my mind all the time, especially because right now I'm in the book of uh, Nehemiah, okay? I just finished that, and I'm into Job now as I'm driving down the road. And I'm listening. I listen to, especially I do this with one in one chronicles in particular as they give lists of names you know this guy beget this bite and they always pronounce them wrong and so i always sit there while i'm driving and i pronounce them correctly for the guy okay and i know when you hear me say something i'll say ishmael and then i'll say isaac okay and so i'm doing the same thing myself because there is no i in the hebrew language okay and when i say i i mean that the sound i the only way you can come to the sound I is be, by having the word A or the letters A and I at the end of a name, okay? Uh, Amishadai. Then it becomes I, but it's not an I. It's an A-I. I. Everybody see that? So when you hear me, I. it's very hard when you've heard the same name so many times to actually divert from that and pronounce it correctly because if you do, nobody's going to know who you're talking about. So I, I, it, it bothers me that I do this because... Everybody knows who I'm talking about when I, I say Ishmael. But if I said Yitzhak, they wouldn't have any idea at all, right? So I apologize. I know I mix things up, but that's just me because I'm doing this all day long in my car. I'm correcting that guy. And some of them are so bad, you know, they, they're so bad. Anyway, one of these days we'll turn around and I'll go through 
all of the Hebrew characters, and I'll show you how you can pronounce it properly. It'll take, let's do it right now. It'll take us two minutes, okay? This is all you need to remember. You've got an A in Hebrew, that's ah, right? So, Kanan, the word Canaan, Kanan, okay? And then E would be eh. So, you have um, uh, Jether, Jether, okay? Yeter, right? It's eh, okay? A, E, and then I is pronounced E. So you've got like uh, uh, right here. Israel. Ani. Ani. So Ani would be my, uh, I, um, yeah, Ani, me. Le do di. So I am to my love. Le do di. So E. It's not I. So when you see the name I, you don't say, um, who's somebody that we pronounce wrong like that? Isaac. Isaac. Yeah, it wouldn't be. It would be Yitzhak. Thank you. Okay. A E I is def or O is definitely O. Yeah, is yeah. How do you say it? Uh, Yishai, Yishael. That's right, Yishael. Because if you have a J in your Bible, it's not a J; it's a Y. Just so you know, if you have a J, it's a Y. Okay, yeah, Yeshua. It's not Jesus, but that I can show you how that came about. And people say it's a conspiracy and that you're going to hell if you say Jesus. That's stupid. Okay, that's very simple. We'll do this really quickly. This is the Hebrew Yud, right? This is the Yud for. Jesus, Yud. Okay, so it'd be Yeshua. Okay, and then when you got into the Greek, the Greeks don't have a Yud, so they have an I, and they have an I-E, I think it's S-O-U-S, Isus. All right, so it's still the I sound like it is here, and then what happens is you got up into the Germanic languages, and they don't have that sound, so what do they have? They have a J. Think of Johannes Kepler. It's not a J. They say Y, right? Same as the Hebrew and same kind of like the Greek. And then from there, it went into the Anglicized languages, and this stayed the J, but now we pronounce it Jesus instead of Jesus, right? So it's just a progression of languages. It's not something that, you know, people get really bent out of shape over this, and they'll, they'll write websites about you're going to hell if you say Jesus. I mean, it's crazy. Anyway, so these are just some of the letters, but uh, a, if you can remember, remember A, A, E, O, U. Kind of like Japanese almost. But if you can remember that, you're going to be able to speak the vowels. And it never changes. People will say this word, N-A-A-M-A-H. They will say, Naama. It doesn't do that. It's Naama. It never changes. The A will always be the same sound. And so when you hear Canaan, they say Canaan. It's Kanaan, okay? It's always the same. You don't have to change it. That's it. That's all we want to do there. It's on my mind. And if you want to know more, just go listen to a Hebrew, um, you know, Pimsleur language or Rosetta Stone. Just listen to the course and you'll be able to speak it. You might not understand it, but you'll at least be able to speak it and you'll understand the proper pronunciation. And so I apologize that I improperly pronounce these things, but it's for your benefit. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, I think we're in Yes. I don't want to be sitting in the same room when I try and pronounce those. Oh, you do fine. After a very short time with a Pims, and I don't speak well. They admitted that on well, Sunday. Well, he teaches the, gar the gargle A. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not now. Yeah, it, it, the best way to do that is think of the word yuck. Oh, yeah. Or yuck. We say, oh, yuck. And they just put it at the beginning of the word, like... Uh, Ketuvim or something. Yeah. I don't know. But it's not Ketuvim. It's, uh, I'm trying to... What? Ketuvim. Ketuvim. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so you, you just got to take the word yach and just kind of throw it at the beginning of it. 
beginning. And Okay, um, uh, where was I? Duped into heresy, life application. In his analogy, Paul says to cast away the law as a means of obtaining justification. If you are clinging to the law to impress God, I hate to tell you, you are failing to do so. God is pleased with the finished work of his son. For us, our trusting in that is what pleases him. Okay. Yes. It's late here. I'm late. You said even in Deuteronomy, even in. Earlier in this thing, you, you, you was quoting, you said even you find this even in Deuteronomy. Okay. Well, the Lord Jesus used Deuteronomy. All the time. Quite frequently, and he did that. Against All the, the time. That's why I say even in Deuteronomy, because you can find <laughs> Jesus even in Deuteronomy. Right. He's he's right there. So that's, I'm stressing that. I mean, you don't just find Jesus in the New Testament. You don't find truths about Jesus in the New Testament. You even find him in places where you wouldn't expect it. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Absolutely. I'm not making that a, an exception. I'm making it a qualifier. Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, 431. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Okay, that one is actually better. This one says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He cuts off woman there. So that's probably more literal, though. I was kidding. Yours isn't any better. It's just different. Okay. All right. Paul's conclusion on this matter is decided with the words, so then. He has used an allegorical, uh, that's the last one in this chapter, so we're going to stop there anyway. Um, uh, he has used an allegorical interpretation of Scripture to make a point about the superiority of the grace of Christ over deeds of the law. He has extended that interpretation to include the idea that the law is to be cast out. So that the words, so then, that he writes is not just a statement concerning the allegory and its interpre interpretation, though. It is a statement that the entire idea that he has been speaking about in this chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Galatians, which includes the allegory, is decided. This final conclusion says, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He's not just speaking allegorically, he's speaking literally about human beings in Christ. Okay, Those in the Old Testament economy are free sons of God through adoption. On the other hand, those under the law or who still hold to the law, even though it is an old in Christ, are not free, but they are in bondage. Jesus even told them this under the law, before he had even finished the law. What did he say about the yoke? Come to me, right? My yoke is easy, and it's light. Absolutely. Even then he was telling them, what I'm going to do is going to be marvelous. He's telling them, you guys are under bondage. And what did he say in John 6? You know, they said, we're not, uh, he said, anybody who uh, sins is a slave to sin. Okay, well, the law is how sin comes about. This is, this is obvious on the surface. So we don't, whatever. Okay, the, where was I? On the other hand, those who are under the law or still hold to the law, even though it is an old in Christ, are not free, but they are in bondage. The law highlights sin. Sin is bondage. Therefore, the bondage of those under the law is sin. And it's just, not just Paul that says this, and he's not just twisting Jesus' words, but Peter says the exact same thing. In Acts chapter 15, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. Well, it wasn't last week because we were eating turkey. But within the last couple classes, we were talking about the bondage, which Peter acknowledges right there in chapter 15. Okay, so if these people, these heretics that, you know, say, well, Paul is twisting scripture and he doesn't jibe with uh 
with um, uh, Jesus, guess what? Neither does Peter then, does he? Because he says exactly the same thing to the same group of people. The law highlights sin. I'll read it again. Sin is bondage. Therefore, the bondage of those under the law is sin. Paul's words are, be, are to be taken as a testimony that we are not to insert the law into our attempt to please God. The only result of this is to show ourselves as being bound by sin. We highlight this in his presence. Instead, we are to show that we are free from sin through the work of Christ. Now, I understand that we all do things that we should not be doing. One of my friends yesterday emailed me and he said, I said in the prayer at the end of the, and he's, it's good that he said this, okay, because it gave me a chance to tell him why I did it, but at the same time, it's good to be corrected on something if you're wrong. At the end of the prayer in the Revelation commentary, I talked about acknowledging sin, okay? And he said, well, you shouldn't have done that because we don't need to confess our sins. We are, our, our sins are, already forgiven in Christ. And I agree with that premise, 100%, okay? But those prayers are not just out there for saved believers. Those prayers are out there for everybody. People may be reading the book of Revelation commentary just because they want to know what the book of Revelation says. And that's why I threw a prayer in at the end, and it's kind of a general prayer. So it's good he said that. At the same time, though, I will tell you this. I've said this in other classes before, and I'll say it again a million times, is that I have no problem confessing my sins to the Lord. Okay, we are not required to do that. We are forgiven. We are, un everything we have done is under the blood, but I have a, a relationship with Christ, just like I have a relationship with you or with you. And if I do something to offend you, I'm going to come up and I'm going to say, I did wrong to you. Am I not going to do that? Are you going to do that? Okay, so to me, I feel the obligation to go to the Lord and say, I did this. You know I did it already. I mean, it's like if I did something to Rhoda, she would know that I did it to her, but I still have to acknowledge it to myself. Right. So Here's I need to get that out of me. Here's the thing. If you don't do that, then you are living license. You're living, you're being presumptuous in my opinion. like I can do it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. That's right. But that's and I know a guy that actually feels that way. He went under the uh, teachings of... Um, uh, what is it, Watchman Nee? Anybody know him? And uh, you got Watchman Nee, and then later came uh, uh, somebody, Lee. They're a couple Chinese guys. And they kind of have that attitude. You just don't need to confess. You just shrug your shoulders and move on. I cannot do that. I'm sorry. I cannot offend the Lord and not speak to him about it. It means it means nothing to you. Yeah, well, that's right. It's an attitude of humility. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's like I say, that's what we're going to do with one another as well. That's right. Positionally, it doesn't have an impact. Uh, that's true. Now, don't don't raise your hand anymore because we have to finish. We've got five more minutes, so we got to get this done. Um, uh, I know I did, but it was something that was pertinent to what we're talking about right here. Okay. Yes, but that go read my commentary on it, and you'll see that you're wrong in your analysis. First John one nine says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. Right? Okay. And guess what? He's speaking about. He's speaking about our initial forgiveness. It, definitely. Go read the commentary. Okay, we got to go. Um, uh, those in the New Testament economy are free sons of God through adoption. I could be wrong in my commentary, so read some other ones too. But on the other hand, and Burke's already, he, he already knows. He's just egging me on. Um, on the other hand, those who are under the law or still hold to the law, even though it is an old in Christ, are not free, but they are in bondage. The law, I've already read that. Let me get down here so we can finish. The only result of this is to show ourselves as being bound in sin and by sin. We highlight this in his presence. Instead, we are to show that we are free from sin through the work of Jesus Christ. The use of the allegory can be summed up in the following contrasts. We got just a couple more minutes. The bondwoman, 
Hagar contrasts the free woman, Sarah, the son of the bondwoman. Ishmael contrasts the son of the free woman, Isaac. The natural birth of flesh contrasts the spiritual birth of the promise. Mount Sinai, might, excuse me, Mount Sinai contrasts with Mount Zion. The law contrasts with the promise. The earthly Jerusalem contrasts with the heavenly Jerusalem. Bondage, meaning the law, contrasts with freedom, grace in Christ. The law is bearing few offspring via the grace of the Day of Atonement, contrasts with grace producing multitudes. Those under the law persecute those who are under grace. The law is to be cast out. Uh, the law is to be cast out contrasts the inheritance of those who are in Jesus Christ. We have the inheritance there to be cast out. Okay, so you've got some contrasts there. If you want those contrasts so you can think on them, go to the commentary on Galatians, which is on the Superior Word website, cut and paste, print it off, and put it on your refrigerator. Life application, and we are done. Paul's contrasts are intended to show us the utter folly of pursuing deeds of the law in order to be justified. Don't display utter folly. Trust in Christ alone. Okay, we need to have a prayer. We need to go. But before we go, I wanted to say to Sergio and Rhoda, because I'm going to get out of here. I need to go and do a bunch of work. And I've, uh, I've got a lot of work to do every Thursday night when I get done. So I'm going to tell you before I go, in, in case somebody is talking to you, that guy drove. Oh, he's gone. He's in the back. Yeah, he the he, he drove from uh, the Carolinas to see you guys. So spend a couple minutes with him before you go home tonight, and hopefully we'll be. He's going to stay with me tonight, and uh, yeah, so you'll be at the house and all that. But um, uh, just so you know, spend some time with him, say hi to him, and uh, he just wanted to meet you. If he doesn't have a calendar, give him one, okay? Because they're from you. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful blessings of the Book of Galatian and the marvel, the majesty of what is written there. That is something that follows all the way from all of Scripture right into the hand of Paul. And it tells us that we have a sure faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need to do deeds of the law in order to be pleasing to you. And instead, doing deeds of the law in order to be pleasing to you is offensive to you. How simple that is. And help us to apply that truth to our lives all the days of our life. And to walk in the grace of Christ and to be humble before him. And to act in a manner that is responsible as Christians called by you, saved by you, and who will spend eternity with you. Help us to start that walk now in your presence. And may it be so to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to put that in break.